Good morning, everybody. Welcome back into the Mining Stock Daily long-form episode this week as we get you into the last day of trading and into your weekend. Special thank you to everybody who tuned in this week. If you missed any of the episodes, a lot of corporate updates, you can go back to clearcommodity.net. You'll see a full rundown on the Mining Stock Daily page of all the episodes from prior in the week. Special thank you to our sponsors, Arizona Snore and Copper, Fireweed Metals, and Western Copper and Gold. We appreciate your continued support of the podcast. I have a great guest. We welcome back Matt Geiger to the show of MJG Capital. Uh, we get a little glimpse into you know what's been going on in Matt's portfolio in the fund. Uh, we talk a lot about copper, uh, this interesting position the copper prices in. We talk about recession. We also talk about this renewed interest. Well, maybe it's a renewed interest. It's a lack of interest in gold, despite the price. And talk about where the opportunities are with this financing window that's obviously opened up. So it's a long conversation with Matt. We cover a lot of different topics. Always great to have Matt on. He just speaks fluently about uh, the junior mining sector and gives us a lot of you know tidbits to kind of ponder as we go about how we also are managing our own portfolio so great conversation all right we're going to jump into this podcast one quick programming note next week i'm off traveling once again so it's gonna be a little bit of a different week uh we're gonna publish two long-form episodes next week so that's fun all right everybody here's my conversation with matt Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. Uh, it's been long overdue to get our good friend Matt Geiger back onto the show. He is the man over at MJG Capital, and he's also a Premier League frenemy of mine, uh, <laughs> mutual rivals whose club seems to be uh, going down the drink here late in the season. But uh, my Chelsea certainly has been leading the way, but it doesn't seem like Tottenham's very far behind us. But Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Oh man, that was a low blow right <laughs> off the bat. Ever that really hurt? But uh, no, it's good. It's good to be joining you. Again. Well, yeah. I mean, it sounds like uh, Chelsea will be bringing in Tottenham's pro- prodigal son Pochettino. So I'm again, I'm gr- thankful that uh, he's not going back uh, to that toilet bowl. No, that's all rumors at Indio, Innuendo. No chance that's happening. That can't be true. I can't believe that. Uh, uh, let, let's let's focus on some let's focus on some metals, miners, and markets here, Matt. There's a lot of directions I want to take this conversation. Um, you know, we are recording this earlier in the week. It's going to air on Friday, most likely. But there's a lot of these ideas I want to kind of cover. Listen, I think the what's been telling is we're starting to get. Uh, you know, it's that time we we're starting to get earnings. See, earnings are coming into the pot. Uh, we're seeing some major cracks. Uh, uh, U, uh, uh, UP, uh, UPS uh, is looked pretty ugly, and uh, FedEx is right following its tracks. Uh, uh, the banks, the regional banks, continue to show just how much devastation they went through the first quarter. And it's really kind of it's 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 having its trends within the markets. However, what's happening here, from what I can see, is we're seeing a kind of a safe haven move. The dollar's up, gold is you know not down, flat to up, and treasuries are getting bought. Uh, you know, give us a general sense about are you watching this earn the this earning season, and really what does this mean for your general macro? economic outlook? Well, Trevor, I, I don't want to be evasive, but I, I would say that the question is very short-term oriented. Um, mm-hmm. I, know, I would argue that, I mean, yes, to, today there has been some, some fluctuations and we do see both the dollar and gold catching a safe haven bid. But the story of the, the year so far has been the, a weak US, USD. Um, I think I think that much that much is clear. And yes, stock markets are off today, but it's actually been a very strong start to the year um, for for the general indices, which I I will say has been a bit of a surprise to me. um, And I think to to many, many participants in in the market Um, in terms of earnings, it's it's not really a question of (laughs) of uh, whether they'll be bad or not year over year. It's, it's, It's a question of how bad from my perspective. And I think. Folks are are tying 
the current market move too closely to earnings. I don't think that's what's what's going on here. Um, I think taking a step back, if you go back to the mid 1980s, there have been six major rate hike cycles. Upon each of the pauses, in all six uh, instances, there was a strong market rally uh, before and after that that pause took place. And actually, in five of those cases, you went on and saw the broader markets rally to all time highs, um, which would catch, I think, the current market by surprise. That's within the realm of possibility. I mean, that's what will happen. Uh, that's what would happen if history repeats. I think this is more likely to be a, a 2000-like scenario, which was the one exception, where upon the Fed's uh, pause, we saw an 11% move, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in the S&P uh, before the bottom dropped off. And of course, you, you've, you've had guests mention the similar phenomenon. It's often upon the first cut that you actually see see the, the the leg lower and and not the pause. So there's still some uncertainty about whether this upcoming meeting will be the final pause or not. We should have some clarity um, within two meetings now, and I think I think the Fed does have one more hike to go. To me, the big question is whether they signal clearly at this next meeting that they're done, or whether they give themselves a little bit of leeway only to announce a pause two meetings from now. So I think that's roughly how it's gonna it's gonna play out, but. The current strength or, or relative strength that we're seeing in the broader market, I think, is much more tied to rates and expectations of a pause than it than it is to earnings. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I'm watching earnings, but from the from an MJG perspective, we take a very long time horizon, and I'm not letting you know the the ins and outs of FedEx's versus UPS's earnings affect you know specific uh, investment decision making. But of course, it's important to follow and. Um, you know, build build a general framework for where you think we are in the market. All right, let's. Uh, I want to talk about your long term outlook here in just a minute, but I do want to. You mentioned next week's FOMC meeting. It, it, it's funny because, and I wrote about it in the uh, Substack uh, this week. But it's funny how every single FOMC meeting is the most important FOMC meeting ever yeah. since the last one. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you know this one is this one will be I'm thinking will be quite telling. Now maybe I'm overthinking this. Is it seems like every time I overthink it, then Jay Powell comes out with a nothing burger, and it's more confusing than actual than providing actual clarity. But it almost seems like he they have to come out with some sort of clarity here. There's just too many there's too many cracks in the systems. There's too many unknowns, and you know. There, but there has to be some sort of sacrifice somewhere here. Does that come in the form of the U.S. dollar? Does it come in the form of the stock market? You know, I just kind of curious where, you know, what are your, do you have expectations for next week? What would you, you know, what do you want to hear? What would clarity look like? These these questions are a bit above my, my pay grade, Trevor. Oh, come on. Um, you know, I, no, they're not. You're a smart guy. You could. Yeah, I, I do not consider myself a, a Fed watcher. Um, well, you know, that's the, the market. See, you're a smart yeah, guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's everybody's eyeballs are are on this, right? And I think if everybody's looking at at something specific, it's very hard to have an edge. That that's what I like about the junior uh, markets, especially when they're out of favor. You know, you can be one of a couple dozen investors very closely following a specific story that nobody else is even paying attention to. So I I, I like that aspect. Um, that said, the markets are telling us that you know a quarter point is is basically baked in for this hike. And as I was saying, yeah, the, the the big question is whether they clearly guide that this is it, or whether they give us another what uh, six weeks to to kind of wait in limbo um, for for the uh, the summer meeting. Uh, but I think two meetings from now, um, whether they announce it for this one or they they hold off, we 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 will see we will see the pause. Um, that said, you mentioned financial stress. I mean, obviously the SVB First Republic, you know, signature saga in the U.S. and then. Credit Suisse, which is even more significant from a from a global perspective, there has been very recent stress in the in the financial system. But contrary to many expectations, uh, at least looking at at current um, volatility measures, there's not a significant a, amount of stress in the financial system. That's at least according to to Buller, uh, Bullard, I believe, out of the St. St. Louis Fed. So I, I do think the, the the Fed is looking at at, at that. And it's not indicative that we're about to go into a financial a financial meltdown. Um, so that may may give them 
more reason to be a little bit more nebulous at, at this meeting. And then though they have six more weeks to, you know, be d- data dependent as they always mm-hmm. uh, assure us that they are. And then, and then make the informed decision to two meetings from now. Um, but I, I really couldn't tell you which direction the market's going to go short term based yeah. off of, uh, of, 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 off of this uh, FOMC meeting next week. That's third and fourth order thinking. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about something we do have a little bit more of a grasp on when it comes to markets. And that's what the metals are telling us. I'd love to get your sense of, you know, what we're seeing in precious metals. We mentioned gold kind of being flat to getting a bid this week, along with the dollar, which is interesting. Uh, Silver's seeing a little bit more volatility, but really Dr. Copper, in my mind, is really screaming something at us. Uh, it, it's really interesting. I, I, I thought it was the, the chart of copper looked not great. I didn't expect it to fall through the bottom as quickly as when I publicly wrote about it this week, but it, sure enough, the next day <laughs> there it goes, but you know, but it, it is something Dr. Copper, let, maybe let's just talk about copper because that was something you were, uh, you were very active in about a year, year mm-hmm. and a half ago. Uh, we what still it, are. But the short-term, mid-term volatility, what are we seeing? What is Dr. Copper telling us right now? Is it telling us recession? Yeah, these these next 12 months are fascinating, particularly for, for copper. Um, it's it's a bit of a coin flip as it as it stands. Um I, I'd agree that the the charts and the and the technicals uh, as well as sentiment are, per, are perhaps uh sniffing out a global recession. And I think it's reasonable to assume that there's going to be a global recession, uh, if not a very significant slowdown, um, just due to the, uh, the the pace of rate hikes uh, across the developed and emerging world. I mean, we've just come off of a historically fast and historically steep rate hike cycle. There, there are going to be uh, follow-on consequences of that, and it's it's going to take a while to play out. So those are the negatives on the copper front, um, but there are very informed copper bulls out there. Um, You'll, you'll, you'll be well aware that uh, inventories and, and stockpiles um, are at record lows. Um, they're you know at, at cycle lows here. Um, and so the cupboards are close to be, uh, being bare. That may not be an issue if there's a major uh, slump in demand. Um, but, if there, but if there isn't uh, a, a fall in demand to the rate that the market seems to expect, that's, that's a major issue. And then you have folks like the Trafiguros of the world or Richard Adkerson at, at Freeport saying simply that I mean, Trafiguro, I think, came on the on the record and said we're going to see record high copper prices here within the next twelve months. So these are these are groups. Yes, they have a a positive bias towards the copper price, but they they live and breathe the metal. And it's it's important to note that China just it's just wild for such a significant metal such as copper. But China, as it stands, consumes fifty five percent of global copper demand. They are the true gorilla in the room. So one could make the argument that a globalist recession. As long as it's uh, sans China, will be outweighed by the China uh, Chinese reopening this year, which is really just gaining gaining steam. Um, the, the first quarter was uh, expectedly slow due to the Chinese New Year. Um, there seems to be a potentially a second COVID wave that's causing a little concern here. But I, I do believe the the Chinese economy is gonna is gonna roar roar out of the gates this year. One just has to think back to what happened in the United States after a quarter or two of of, of lockdowns how quickly we turn the switch and at least year over year figures jumped into the single digits. China, they've been, they've been shut for t- close to two years at this point, if not longer. So I think one could expect an even more pronounced uh, d- uh, recovery of demand there. And as the indisputed king of copper demand, that could be enough to move the metal itself. So it's really an interesting, uh, I would say, tug of war between the global slowdown and uh, the, the the resurgence in Chinese demand, which is which is real. What about copper's yeah. microclimate? What could be disruptive of adding to that supply here in the near term? Kamoa Kakula is obviously uh, doing exceptionally well. Uh, uh, Los Bronces in Chile actually received their EIA, which could be a little bit of uh, uh, adding more supply. That's not necessarily going to be happening quickly, but it is something to be looking at. But what is something? What what is the what is the on the micro side of copper? What is something that people should be watching that really could adjust that supply deficit in the near term? Mm. In in the near term, I would I would say there, there's not much to be to be perfectly honest. The 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 lag time and the lead times that are needed 
um, to either scale up a new copper production or expand an existing production should be measured in years and hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. I mean, even the world's largest mining companies, and you'll see that this is this is a trend um, with with the recent deal between uh, First Quantum and um, and and B, um, BHP, if I'm not mistaken, in Peru, where they're teaming up with with other majors to advance these these significant projects. Even the world's largest mining companies don't necessarily have the the resources and or technical skill set to to take a, cop, a large scale copper porphyry development project to to production. Um, so in the short term, I don't see anything on the supply side immediately affecting fortunes. Um, I, I guess the one the one caveat would be. Um, uh, Tenke uh, Fuguruma, I think I butchered the the <laughs> pronunciation there, but uh, reopening in in the DRC, um, I think that's going to have a much more larger impact on the cobalt market. But there is some stockpiled material that will be hitting the market in the near term. I don't think that's going to cause any major waves in the copper market, but that remains to be seen. Um, longer term, aside from just a sustained multi year push uh, to develop new projects. Uh, make new copper discoveries, expand exe- existing production. The only other curveball that I'm keeping an eye out on is the advancement of some of this extractive uh, technology like uh, Jetty Resources mm-hmm. or Rio Tinto's New- Newton. I don't think that has a, an impact here in the next few years, but over the next 5, 10, 15 years, I think that that will supplement copper supply. And I think that will be that will be a positive for for the world because we'll be able to squeeze more more juice, so to speak, out of out of the, our existing lemons. But I don't think that that's you know a, a black swan event that could swamp the copper market with with new supply. I do think it's real though, and the technology will improve. Mm-hmm. And the higher that copper prices go, the more economic that it will be to to perform. So I think that's worth keeping an eye on the Newtons and the the jetty resources of the world. You know, I'm very curious to know when or if Rio Tinto would come out with some sort of their data with the Newton technology. Cause I know they they've, they've invested in a number of really, they're already really good copper projects. Uh, you know, people who listen to the podcast will know, you know, Arizona Sonoran copper is obviously um, uh, regulus resources. I mean, uh, McEwen mining. McEwen, I mean, so um, there's a McEwen copper. Yeah. Right? I mean, and I'm just kind of curious, and you know, I ask these CEOs within of those of those development and exploration companies about what they know or what are they seeing from Rio Tinto. But it'd be nice to hear what the latest research shows from Rio Tinto. I mean, is there? Do you think there ever be a time? And I'm, you know, this is kind of an open ended, but isn't that something that maybe? Not that they owe the market some information, but wouldn't that be nice to at least understand what they're finding out in the research? Not that it's economic, but just like what's working, what's not working, what's some of the minuscule details of this that you know they can really build upon. It'd be it just I just think it'd be nice to understand where they're at. I agree. I, I think there's two points to that. The first is that I believe the technology, you know, it varies very much from a, a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. So it's going to sp- depend on the specific pro- project and the specific metallurgy at that project. So I think it'd be hard to make an arm wave that across all, you know, low grade sulfides, we can expect 70% recoveries using Newton or what have you. So th- that's the first point. The second, though, is that they absolutely could provide more clarity. But, you know, in the case of Rio, to my understanding, this has been technology that they've been developing behind the scenes for decades. And they've clearly made a concerted decision on the, the, the corporate level to, to keep their cards very close to their chest. Maybe that changes. But that said, I mean, Rio is a massive company. And something like this, even if they reported really good news on Newton, probably wouldn't move the needle all too much from a share price perspective. Whereas if they were a smaller, you know, junior or or a jetty resources where their sole focus is this uh, technology, it maybe makes sense to be more transparent with the market. But if anything, they may be giving away trade secrets without gaining too much of a, of a, of a boost um, mm-hmm. from a marketing perspective, even if they were to put out really good results. So I think that's probably the rationale behind it. From my perspective, the proof will just will be in the pudding. So it's less about study numbers and more about when do we see Newton utilized with one of these uh, partner projects on a commercial scale. You know, whether it's Excelsior Mining comes first or Regulus or McEwen Copper or Arizona Sonoran, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where where they sit in the pecking order. But do we see Newton actually used on a commercial scale 
with the with any of these operations. And until we see that commercial proof, um, you have to take everything with a significant grain of salt. So in this copper space, do you continue to look for opportunities in copper, in new copper plays? Or, I mean, you went pretty heavy about a year, two years ago. Uh, what are your thoughts here? Are you looking to add, you know, give me a sense. We're sitting, we're sitting tight. I mean, copper as it stands is j- just barely, but it's our largest weighting by metal within the MJG portfolio. We have about 19, uh, 19 positions as it stands. If I'm not mistaken, six of them are copper focused. Um, so it's, it's a good chunk of the portfolio. It's a metal that I have very strong conviction in, in the medium to, to long term. Um, but with any of these uh, metals, when, when looking at the junior space, it's all about spe- uh, selecting specific companies uh, with the right people and the right projects to make it work. So again, I'm not taking a basket approach here and trying to make a macro bet on copper. I do like the metal and I feel comfortable investing it, but I view our six positions as hand-selected for very specific reasons um, because of the people, the assets, and the fact that they're, they're undervalued. Um, interestingly, as it stands, and I, I was just thinking this this through last week. In terms of our copper exposure, almost all of it comes from either five of those six positions are either prospect generators or they're royalty slash royalty generators. Hmm. Um, and so, to specific to copper, and this wasn't necessarily a concerted decision that that I made, but as it stands to copper, most of our exposure comes through those business uh, business models, and we don't actually, as it stand, have any late stage copper development exposure other than royalties on said assets, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I've written about a few of these companies publicly in, in past investor letters, you know, names like Nova Royalty, um, names like Lara Exploration. Um, but there are, there are a handful of others that are either prospect generators or, or royalty generators um, with significant copper exposure. Two other names that I've, I've spoken about in recent interviews, just because it's been topical, has been um, Elemental Altus and EMX Royalty. Um, and as you know, they both own royalties along with Franco Nevada and Sandstorm over the Casarones uh, deposit in Chile, which was recently bought by uh, Lundin Mining from uh, Japanese group JX, JX Deepon. Um, so I'm, I'm excited um, to have exposure through the royalty through the royalty model, which will maybe provide a little less leverage when copper ultimately makes its big move. And I think we do see a big move at some point during this decade. I just don't know <laughs> when. And I feel very comfortable investing with the royalty model. I think for longer term oriented investors, that's the way to play the space over multiple cycles. Let's talk about that Vicuña district. As that has just been a really interesting story. You know, after 15, 20 years where the company, you know, split all those assets apart, you can start to see the pieces starting to come back together a little bit. And there's a strategy out there on the table, but obviously it's going to be a long-term strategy with the, with Casarones and Jose Maria, Filo, NGEX. You know, how are you watching the story play out? I mean, because each of it has its own story, but in the long term, you, like, it's not, it's not crazy to see this thing coming back together at some point, some point in time, is it? No, it's not. I mean, it's fascinating watching the the Lundin family push their collective chips on the on the table here. They have really gone all in on that on that district, and uh, I think there's there's good reason for it. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's country where there are major major generational copper deposits, and there's an interesting debate going on in the industry right now. I feel like the Lundins probably fall on the Robert uh, Friedland side of the ledger, where the, the the industry underweights the importance of long life assets. And you know nowadays it's harder than ever to both permit and obtain social license to bring an actual large scale asset to production. And so these groups, if they're going to go through that effort and take that risk, they want the confidence that it's going to be adding to their cash flows, not just 15 years in the future, but 40 years in the future. Mm-hmm. And I think BHP's um, foray <laughs> into into Philo with that five percent uh, strategic investment uh, is a tacit endorsement of what the Lundines are doing in that part of the world. Um, it's interesting that they're straddling the border both between Chile and Argentina. Uh, yes. 
that creates uh, major complications. Um, and it's, it's going to be hard to integrate operations um, across the border. But by the same token, it also hedges their political risk uh, to some degree um, between, between two, different, two different countries. And as said, we don't own any of those specific vehicles down there. But the MJG's exposure to the Vicuña district comes from from the royalty side of things. So on the Casarones asset, and then uh, Lundy, uh, sorry, uh, Nova Royalty also owns um, royalties over Taka Taka and uh, Jose Jose Maria as well. So mm. we we have indirect exposure from my perspective uh, to this play. Okay, uh, well, let's turn the page here and talk about a couple other ideas and stepping away from. Uh, copper you've been pretty active in some financings from what i understand in fact i I know this because you and i have recently participating in a similar financing Uh, i'll leave it to you to share which one that is Uh, but uh but this isn't the only one you've been doing let's talk about this window financing window which has opened up recently you know earlier in the year there was a little bit of a window but if you're raising money in january february it was for a lot of money and for you know, well-established development projects. But if you were a small junior explorer, uh, there was no dice. But that really turned uh, probably late March and, and into April here. So let's talk about what is your sense? This Is there this window open for riskier financing and earlier exploration plays? And where are you putting money? Where do you see opportunity here? That's right. Well, the window did open. Uh, we'll say three to four weeks ago, late March, early April. And that was due, I think, to one psychological reason. We saw gold break $2,000 per <laughs> ounce pretty convincingly. And silver you know, followed uh, shortly thereafter above $25 an ounce, another important psychological level. So yes, we've seen an absolute flood of financings. It's, it's died down a little bit in the past week or two. But yeah, over, over the past month, we've seen juniors come out of the woodwork left and right to raise. Um, particularly in the silver space. It feels like basically every single silver company, uh, at least those that didn't finance in January and February, have since come come to market. So even though I would say the macro setup is very supportive for, for precious metals generally and, and the juniors as well, and even though the metal prices themselves have seen very impressive moves over the past six or seven months, because of the A, lack of uh, of generalist and uh, excitement about the junior space we've yet to see the money trickle trickle down and be just the sheer numbers of of juniors that have all simultaneously uh, come come above surface to raise money that the leverage is still on the investors side um, versus versus the uh, the, the issuers um, so I actually don't think it's a terrible time to be deploying into select junior Financings, particularly for those that have that either feel underweight the juniors or have been out of this uh, precious metal space entirely for one reason or another. That said, from an MJG perspective, I'll, I'll push back on your point a little bit. We're, we've we've largely been sitting pat. Um, we are we are pretty well exposed already. We're about 60 percent weighted between gold, silver, and PGMs. So I'm I'm feeling pretty well weighted to the precious metal complex. As it stands, we have participated in deals. Um, we may have done, I think we've done five deals this year, but to be clear, three of them were with existing holdings. Mm-hmm. So I view those as supporting and following on with previous investments. We've only added two new positions this year. So we haven't been going hog wild in terms of adding new names to the portfolio, but we have solidified a, a couple of our positions through private placements. And there are also some private, uh, some prospect generators and some other common share positions we own in the portfolio, where I'm confident the company will not have to raise money for a number of years, if not ever, that we've been chipping away on the on the open market. But I haven't been going open season in terms of, of new names. And quite frankly, I don't see us adding any new uh, positions um, until Q3 at, at the earliest. Uh, but again, that's that's due to how we're currently positioned. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily advice or you know feedback for your audience. Um, it's just based on MJG's core, yeah. current portfolio. Can you tell me why Q3? I mean, it's it more of an internal reason than it is market reason. Yeah, it's it's a bit arbitrary. I, I agree. But it's just, it's just to keep myself disciplined. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult in this environment. We've had a very strong start to the year. Even though the MJG portfolio is exposed very much to the junior end of the spectrum with, you know, median market cap of maybe 70 million 
amongst our positions because of a few specific outperformers. Again, I haven't seen the junior space move in mass at all. Mm-hmm. It's not been a rising tide, you know, lifts all boats scenario, at least yet. But due to a couple specific performers within the portfolio, we've done well. Um, but we're a long only fund and we're running a bit hot on the cash uh, position that I plan to have at this point. It's worked well for us so far this year, but I really don't want to get greedy. I think it's important to have double digit uh, cash exposure in, in this environment because um, we just don't know what's going to happen with the broader market. And if slash one, it goes, you know, risk risk off again, um, you know, having some cash on, on the side uh, gives gives one in Rick Rule's words, the conviction and courage uh, to take advantage of the volatility um, versus versus falling victim to it. Um, so that's the thought process here. And yes, if we're off to the races and the junior space triples over the next 12 months, then sure, we'll have left a little bit of money on the table. But I think myself and the MJG partners will be just will be just fine with that were that to play out. It does feel like this is kind of that simmering moment where, you know, sentiment sentiments. It's interesting. Sentiment isn't necessarily. Real bearish in the junior market, but it's not. It's obviously not exuberant. Um, it's it's just kind of it's just kind of it's, it's just kind of there. In fact, I'd probably even say it's a little bit. It's more on the bearer side than it is, you know, bullish because I've just feel like the last two years have been really long. And it's been death by a thousand cuts for many of us who've been hanging in there and you know holding bags for so long. Um, but is this is this that moment where? you know, those 10 baggers, you know, let's not even say 10 baggers. I feel like 10 baggers is awfully used. It's like, that's your shining moment in the sector. Right. Everybody's looking for a 10 bagger. Nothing's wrong with like three, 400% gain, right? That you can, you can, you can find those more often than the 10 baggers. But, but these are those moments where those types of gains can come pretty dang quickly. Once that sentiment actually changes and is triggered extremely quickly so what, yeah, i mean I, I are we getting closer i mean i'd not say i'm not going to ask you what that moment's going to be but it certainly feels like whatever that moment is going to be we're getting every day is one day closer to it because the world is just fearful right now right i think if you isolate juniors focus specifically on gold and silver that moment is quite close I, I really do. I, I hearken back to uh, the March 2020 crash, um, which which you'll remember well. Absolute white white knuckle experience. You know, watching the MJG portfolio fall, really 40 percent peak to trough. I remember in, talking to you, Matt. I remember 90 days. I remember talking to you. Yeah. Painful experience. I felt but then for precious it. then precious metals began to recover, and the, the the prices of the physical metals started to move, and then the prices of the major miners started to move. And the GDX and the GDXJ, the major indices. And then that continued for another month. Then that continued for another month into May. And then that continued for another month into June. And I remember following along with, with the juniors, because as I mentioned, we're very heavily weighted towards the junior end of the spectrum. And we were po- there was green on the screen, which was nice, but we were lagging in a big way. And it was a bit of a test of, of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the, the worm did turn come mid-June, July, August. We played insane catch up and ended that year up 115%. And a lot of those gains really came within a 90 to 120 day window, at least on, on the precious metals front. So I've experienced it before. And look, this is, this is playing out largely as, as past moves have. Like, I think this move in precious metals is real. I, I, I do. And if it is real, then it will trickle down to the juniors. It's just a question of when. Um, but we've seen very strong moves in the price of physical metals. We've seen strong moves amongst the blue chips um, of the mining space. We've seen strong moves amongst the the ETFs. If it continues, and there may be a consolidation period here, and the juniors continue to lag, but if this move is real, and I believe that it is, it's it's inevitable that it, that it comes down to the juniors. So I'm I'm really excited, um, at least for the for the gold and silver um, focus names, because I, I I would. I would segregate those from the rest of the metals market as it stands. Remember that we had an ins- a really painful period as it pertains to precious metals between late 2020 and really October of 2022, a mm-hmm. two-year grinding drawdown 
So all but the weakest hands were shaken out. That that also gives me conviction that this move is real because it because it began from a point of real capitulation. If you look to rest uh, much of the rest of the metals complex, you know it was hot as recently as you know March April of 2022. Um, you know right before uh, the major drawdowns in the broader markets and kind of that rally we saw on the back of the Russia Ukraine invasion. And of course, lithium is kind of the, 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 uh, the poster child here. That was as hot as recently as, as 90 days ago. So I, I do think it's important from a sentiment perspective to kind of, to draw a distinction between juniors focus more on the critical mineral side of things versus those focused specifically on the precious metals and the immediate term for what it's worth. I'm, I'm certainly more, more positive on, on the precious metals. Um, but I think the longer term demand narratives are so compelling for some of these critical minerals, you know, copper at the at the top of the list that I, I, I'm not going to try to trade around it and get cute. I'm, I'm willing to withstand some volatility for later this decade. You mentioned lithium. Let's talk about lithium. That thing has yeah. fallen from from graces here, at least the spot price of uh, uh, lithium carbonate and, and, and spodamine. But there's a couple there. There was some news, obviously, that caused that obvious. Uh, um, there's news out of China a couple of weeks ago that they were selling lithium for way below spot. That took a hit to some of the lithium equities in the West. And then actually last week, while I was in Chile, obvious, obviously uh, their president announced, and it, it, I think a lot of this was kind of thrown way overboard, obviously. There's some really good reporting about why this isn't nationalization. However, uh, through the loss in translation, I, 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 I do understand why people would say, uh, you know, Chile is going out there and nationalizing their lithium mining. That's 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 not the case. There's some yeah, really it's good clickbait, though. It is good so. clickbait. Um, but there is I mean, there's some newsletter writers have done some really good job of breaking that down. And I'll just I'll uh, leave it at that. It's just very eye opening. But it, it, that also has had a huge hit in the lithium price as well. So. Maybe we we'll talk about Chile because I think this is, is this is quite interesting. But um, what to take about this move down in lithium? I mean, if you're bullish lithium long term, is this your buying opportunity, or do you still need to see some some more <laughs> downside to go? It's a fair question to ask. I mean, the, the price of of, of carbonate's off seventy yeah. percent. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, and we're we're talking in a matter of four four or five months here. It's been an insane. Uh, drawdown. And we've seen many of the juniors, um, even though a few of them for, you know, more M&A related uh, reasons are near all time highs. As a whole, a, a broad lithium, uh, junior lithium basket is is off um, by, uh, by a similar amount over the same period. Um, yeah, it can be tempting to say now's the time to, to jump into the space. Uh, I'm skeptical. So we're, we're steering clear of lithium for, for the foreseeable future here. We do have some indirect exposure through a couple positions, but I'm planning to leave it at that. And the, and the rationale is that we're really just 90 days away. Of course, it's been painful in those 90 days, but as recently as mid, you know, early in mid-January, you had new lithium issues popping up left and right. You had companies announcing new, you know, formally focused on gold for the past five years, announcing new lithium acquisitions or finding new pegmatite occurrences on their on their properties. Um, you saw a flurry of, of M&A activity. It, it really did feel like the type of behavior you, you saw prospect generators announcing that they had hidden lithium portfolios and literally doubling on the uh, back of that announcement, even though all information was publicly available about what properties they own. This is really the type of behavior that you'd expect to see towards the peak of a market cycle. And I, I, I hearken back to the last lithium run. Um, this would have been the 2016, 27, uh, 2017 window, um, which petered out right at the end of 20, at, at the end of 2017. And we actually did quite well over that period with a company called Lithium Americas. Um, and it, it was one of, it was a 10 bagger for us, held it from, I believe 2014. So it was a bit longer than that, that window. Um, but it went from a dollar 20 to 1275 split adjusted over that period. Um, we sold at, at, at 12. Um, and then it proceeded to fall back to $4, even $3.50 a share. Um, I felt quite proud of myself at the time. Of, of course, then Lithium America share price proceeded to rally from $4 all the way up to 60 in this most recent run up over the past year or two. So, mm -hmm. so the joke's on me now. <laughs> but the, but the, the lesson I took from that is it took a good 
two and a half years for the pullback to complete. So again, late 2017 is where you saw the lithium price and lithium equities peak. And then it was a very ugly 2018, very ugly 2019, ugly first half of 2020, but that was largely due to macro forces and and COVID-related pressures. And then the lithium bull got running again. And, you know, 2021 um, was a strong year. And then we saw the excesses really come out, out in 2022, late in early 2023. So again, we're just 90 days from when the space was hot based off of past cycles. It could be different this time, but my sense is that there's probably a couple more years of pain to go. And lithium bulls, it's, it's not a pleasant thought, but it's quite true that your junior could be, you know, if you, if you pick the right story, it could be up 5x seven years from now, but that doesn't stop it from being down another 50% a year and a half from now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks are saying, you know, I'm holding it long term. I'm holding it for later this, this decade. You know, I'm going to buy and bite my lip. That's easier to say, but when the, when the position moves against you strongly, um, most folks will, will get, ultimately get shaken out. So I think that's the big risk. If you can truly deploy capital lithium, lock it away in the, in the right names and, you know, take it out of the drawer five or six years later, you'll probably do just fine. The risk, of course, is, is thinking long-term and rationalizing the investment that way, but being shaken out by weakness in the next six, 12, 18 months. Well, and I also, long-term, I'm also very concerned about the supply of lithium and being, you know, lithium coming online that has to adhere to a certain type of chemistry based on manufacturer's needs, right? I mean, you're talking minuscule, specifications and if that's not met then what good is your project if the manufacturers have no use for what you're producing then uh you know that's a that's a that's a zero right <laughs> you know, right fair point and there's also been a strong supply response well exactly I mean, every country yep. every country has from north to south america it seems like every country has a brand new massive lithium project that they're trying to move forward. That's right. I mean, Bank of America has six new mines, and I'm sure at least a couple of these will be unexpectedly delayed as it goes in mining. We should have six new mines online within the next six months within the lithium space. Yeah, We need that in copper. Where's that in copper or or nickel or any of these other metals or, or graphite or rare earth metals? It's, you know, all this attention has been thrust on lithium. And I get it. It's the material that's most levered to the EV adoption. But it's not the only material, clearly, that is needed for these EVs to run. Right, right. <laughs> there's there's dozens of them. So I feel like folks have uh, have fixated on the shiny shiny object. And if you want to play these long term electrification trends, sure, lithium is one way to do so. But there are plenty of other metals that have not seen nearly as much investor attention that are, you know, close to if not as significant as lithium. Yeah. Well, and let, so let's t- continue this. Let's talk about Chile and that news of their. Uh, non-nationalization of the lithium industry obviously the country of chile the government there wants to kind of bring that in majority state-owned it is very similar to what they did with cadelco it seems like which has majority ownership of of the country's copper production it seems like they Mm -hmm. want to replicate that on the lithium side um you know i I don't want people to like take this the wrong way, but I like, I don't hate it. I, cause I can see why they would do this. It's worked. I guess you could say it's worked for them in the copper space. So why not try to replicate it in the lithium space? It's still very early days. There's a lot of, you know, bureaucracy and administrative work within the government that needs to be approved. I don't know how, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but you know, given the news of that headline, how did you, how did you kind of react to that, Matt? Mm. I think it may ultimately be a bit of a, a nothing burger here. Yeah. I mean, who is it relevant to? There, there's really only a couple uh, lithium focused juniors focused on, on Chile, which is surprising given how important of a, of a, of a, a, a lithium endowment that the country has. Um, but in terms of existing licenses there. I can think of the Maracunga project, um, which is, you know, one, one, one asset. And then of course there's SQM and, and Albemarle. So if it has any effect, it's probably on those two entities. Um, but as it stands, according to Boric's announcement, none of this will have any effect on existing contracts. So then the question for SQM and 
Albemarle is when when do they next have to negotiate contracts? SQM is is in more jeopardy, you, you could say. That comes up in 2030. I think Albemarle is closer to 2043. Um, so as it comes as it comes to 2030, there is the risk that upon the renegotiation, SQM will lose a percentage of their assets to the state mining company. But I would note, I mean, that's what seven years from now, Boric will not be in power. Um, as president, political winds will have certainly blown <laughs> to the left and the right, and then back to the left again. You know, who who knows what happens? Seven years is a long time um, in 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 the world of politics. So, I'm I'm not, uh, you know, I'm I'm not um, a believer that this is going to fundamentally impact mining in Chile. It's definitely a negative headline, um, you know. And I guess the the major concern is that it spills over into other metals, and that you know. Next month, we see Boric announcing a, a national gold and silver company. That, of course, would be very, very negative. But I think to your point, lithium is special um, and it's, it's, it's viewed as, as, as a special metal. Um, and based on Chile's unique history with Codelco, um, the, the thought process amongst the, the, the government there was let's, let's try to replicate this. Personally, I think it's a, it's a mistake. Um, there are a whole, you know, fr- from the government's perspective, there are a whole host of ways to increase the take, um, the government take of specific mineral projects. Um, that can be done through, you know, f- project level, you know, carried interest that can be done through taxes that can be done through royalties. Um, I tend to think that it's cleanest for the, for the government to, to confine it to royalties and taxes and investors and companies are more, um, comfortable with that as well. So yes, this will increase the government's take, but it also has seen a bit of a knee-jerk reaction from the the investment community. I think they could have accomplished the same thing without <laughs> kind of um, uh, creating this level of, of consternation. But I, I don't know if we'll be we'll be talking about this, um, you know, six or six or twelve months from now. Mm. Um, we shall see. But it definitely took the wind out of the sails of the Los Bronces, um, you know, EIA uh, approval there, which you know should have been a big win for the the Chilean mining industry and is now uh, already out of the headlines. Uh, Matt, let's, I'm going to start wrapping it up here. My last question for you, because I know everybody's just kind of curious. They love, you know, names. Who, who are you interested in? Uh, who, who are you looking at, you know, short-term, mid-term, uh, maybe uh, some of those financings you've done this year? What is something that's, you know, speculative, but you're certainly interested in right now, specifically? Mm. You want specific names? Well, I'll just say the quickly. People, the people want specific names, Matt, and you're a man of the people. You're here to deliver. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's it's going to be hard to to refuse that. Um, I'll just say say generally, the MJG portfolio were about twenty five percent weighted to prospect generators, which I think is quite high. Um, it's a market environment that, oh, sorry, a market a uh, business model that is entirely out of favor in this market environment. And it's also a business model that I happen to like. Um, I think it's an, an intelligent way to perform exploration work and what's an extremely risky and, and low probability of success business. So the, the MJG um, uh, team here, we've built a prospect generator model um, with uh, 40 different members and we reweighted at the end of, of each month Um and it's helped lead to a couple interesting investment ideas. Um, the things we look for most generally, first is people, first and foremost. So does the management have skin in the game? Um, how do they get those shares? Are they the right people with the geological talent and the industry connections to bring to both generate ideas and bring in larger partners? Assuming that box is checked, you want to look at the runway. How long do they have to go before the next financing? One of the beauties of the prospect generation business model is that it's it's built to defer or at least limit dilution. So you're kind of defeating the, the purpose of the model if you're buying a prospect generator that only has three, six, even 12 months of runway. So that's the second thing I look at. Hmm. Um, third is the downside. Um, because this this business model is so out of favor, you literally you have prospect generators that are trading near, if not at, their liquidation value. And I think liquidation value can be used as an approximate sense of, of, of downside. And your average expiration stage junior, if things don't work out, they can have 90, 95% downside from the point that you bought it. The beauty with a company that has very little enterprise value, if not no enterprise value, is that 
the cost of failure is largely just the opportunity cost. Um, and so that's, that's something to look for. And then the aggregate partner spend relative to the company's enterprise value. And of course, the, the more money going into ground from partners and the smaller the enterprise value, the more attractive that opportunity looks. So dr- drum roll, please. And, and this is a position that I have talked about in, uh, publicly in a couple interviews. It's not one that I've written about um, in, in recent investor letters, um, but it's a company called Almadex Minerals. And it really, it checks all of those boxes. Um, management team that has multiple uh, discoveries over the past two and a half decades uh, under their belts. Um, company that added a million dollars uh, to the treasury uh, last year by contracting out uh, some or all of their six company owned drill rigs. So there's minimal to no dilution risk. Um, a company that's trading literally at its liquidation value. I think they have 19.2 million in, in cash and marketable securities, the vast majority of that cash. And they have, you know, a 20, $21 million market cap. So nice to find a downside in the case that they don't make a new, a new discovery. And it's also a group that we've made money with before. Um, we bought this this company in late 2015, early 2016, in a really similar circumstance, um, where they at that point had seven million, I believe, in the bank in cash and, and gold bullion at that time, and they had a seven million dollar market cap. Six months after initiating the position, the team went and made a new discovery, the Cobra discovery. Mm-hmm. The Almadex share price went on to ten bag from those levels. So I think it'd be foolish to expect that this will repeat as as quickly this time around. And there's a chance that it doesn't repeat at all. Again, expiration is extremely risky. But from my perspective, if you can find these asymmetric opportunities where you have limited downside, but the p- potential for the asymmetric upside that can come from a true grassroots discovery, that's a, that's a bet worth taking. So that is, a, that is one of the positions that we've been kind of hammering away at here uh, on, on the open market um, over, over the past uh, few months. And it's, it's one that I'm pretty comfortable, at least at the current valuation, sitting tight with for the foreseeable future. Um, and I think in a worst case scenario, you know, it may be an opportunity cost and we may not see the share price move all too much, either up or down from current levels. Um, but in the junior market, that can often not be a terrible outcome, uh, particularly if the market turns against you. So you asked for a name and uh, <laughs> I gave you one. There you go. Uh, Matt, <laughs> very much you. out of favor. <laughs> Matt, I appreciate your time. It's good to connect with you, man. Uh, I think um, we'll see what the summer has in store. In fact, we'll see what next week has in store. Uh, things will be, hopefully things have more clarity with which way we're moving. But I agree with you. I think this move, at least in the precious metals is the real thing. And next time you and I talk, um, Maybe we'll have a little bit more clarity with our bullishness. Yeah. All right. Matt Geiger. Matt Geiger for MJG Capital. Matt, take it easy. Have yourself a great rest of your week and weekend. You as well, Trevor. Thanks for having me. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.